Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. Neighbourhood Bully, Bob Dylan on Soho Service on Soho Radio. Thanks for joining me this week. The reason why we're playing Bob Dylan is because we are very lucky to be joined this week by Georgia Green from the Mikvah Project. And I thought Bob Dylan is probably the most famous Jewish songwriter of this generation to have on. So it's only right, a good excuse at least, to play some of his fantastic music. We're very lucky today to be joined by Georgia Green. Um, who directed recently uh, the Mikva project, which was on at the Orange Tree Theatre um, in March, until unfortunately it was closed down due to COVID-19, along with a lot of other productions. What's really exciting about the Mikva project was that it's been taken up by Radio 4 as part of their Lockdown Theatre Festival, which was an initiative created by Bertie Carvel. Um, you might know him from Mrs. Trunchbull and Matilda and other different things. Um, and you can listen to it now on, on, on the BBC. Uh, it's, it, it's been recreated for audio. And I thought it'd be really interesting to get Georgia on to discuss how she came about being involved in the project, how it came, um, how it was to transition and change that into something for the radio. And also what we think the, the role is perhaps of directors moving forward and, and, the, and, and how we can reinvigorate our arts after what's been quite a difficult time, I think, for the industry. Um, Georgia, if you wouldn't mind, could you maybe just explain sort of how you came to be involved in the project and what the, what it meant for you um, and what spoke to you about um, Josh Aziz's script that meant you wanted to be involved in it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was thinking earlier that I've been involved with this play now for a year. Um, I went back, uh, the first rehearsals were, were this time last year um, and they were for a really short four-night festival of new work uh, by uh, young directors that the Orange Tree put on. There were four plays in rep for like a week Mm. so it's quite a small gig um and then the play is so brilliant and so um it's such a it's it's a story I'd never seen before which is why I was so excited when I found the play that it was about a the Jewish world which is something really exciting for me to see but also that it's a story about sort of it's a really it appeals to such a sort of base uh storyline that we love to see which is like two people who maybe would have got it together in a different world but just because of the situation they're in they can't and it's just aching and beautiful um and it sort of did really well at that short festival and it sold out across its run and there was quite a lot of um I guess momentum around it um and then it was picked up for the main uh season at the Orange Tree uh, for their spring season which was totally exciting because uh, it was mine and also many of the people in the creative teams. It was their first main stage gig. So it felt like we'd really, you know, we'd like we'd really come from somewhere together and we'd made this project out of 
love and and out of you know when there was no pressure on it because we didn't know anyone was going to see it and then that was why it was maybe quite good and then uh yeah we got to put it on and then two weeks into that run it was uh cancelled which was totally devastating but you know just how it is at the moment um and then we were totally thrilled because it was uh picked up by Bertie's initiative for radio and we got to I don't know it was consolation because it happened so quick lockdown happened so quickly that we were never even, you know, there was never even a film made of of the play. So lots of us had no evidence of of like a year's work. Um, so it was totally brilliant translating it for radio, and and it's had a really great reception there as well. So I think it's really a testament to to Josh's work and also to the care and and love of the team that have worked on it for so long. If that answers your question. Yeah, it certainly does. Um, do you want to, we've, we've spoken about, you sort of, you touched on the storyline there. I've realised we haven't even sort of described what it's about, what what the what the mikveh is, for people who might not know. Would you be able to sort of give a brief, brief overview of, of the plot and, and what it explores and what it involves? Yeah, so the play is about these two, uh, a man called Avi, who's 35, who's sort of in a happy marriage, in a job that's maybe not very exciting, but is fine in a stable world. And he... Uh, and his wife trying for a baby and it's been going unsuccessfully for quite a long time. So he feels quite a lot of pressure on him uh, to fulfill what he thinks is his duty. And then he sort of meets this 17 year old boy who's obviously having a difficult time of it in the world. Um, and I guess they meet at this intersection in their life where they both are struggling and aren't able to talk about it. And so they feel very that the only place they're really seen is by each other. Um, and that all takes place when they act, accidentally meet at this mikvah, which is, um, for those who don't know, I feel like I spent my life explaining what it is, and I sometimes worry I don't really <laughs> know myself. Um, it's a ritual mm. bath that um, often more Orthodox Jews will use either to cleanse before the Sabbath, um, or it's involved in lots of menstruation rituals and wedding rituals, and it's about purification and returning your body to a sort of divine state so it can be close to god and cleanliness is as we know close to god um so that's the basic yeah. premise and and it's sort of this like innocent relationship that starts to uh become slightly problematic as it starts to tinge their lives outside of the mikvah and and threaten their lives at the synagogue and and their marriages and you know there's a sort of undertone of how permissive are we of homosexual encounters in more orthodox rungs of judaism and that's a sort of underlying question uh, around it yeah i was that, that's an interesting point you just you raised there at the end because as much as i think in the first sort of five minutes of the play um he they describe themselves as postmodern orthodox both of these characters and which is a phrase i i, I quite i quite enjoyed um and then as it sort of goes along it sort of becomes clear at another point um i think it's Aton describes himself as not even believing in god and so it, it was very interesting sort of seeing that relationship between tradition and often also again that homosexual relationship it seems that it what the, where is it maybe about the orthodox community um, or the sort of the modern sort of traditional Jewish community in Northwest London. It, it wasn't theological themes weren't explored so much as, you know, I'm going against God by being like this. Those weren't sort of, at least from, my, from what I, um, how, how I, I saw it. Um, but it, it seemed to be in that respect quite a, a very Jewish play because often we don't, you know, questions of, of God and things when we, we discuss about um faith at least from my own experience god isn't always in the picture explicitly it's more about just 
doing ritual acts and doing things instead. Um, did, did you find that the sort of that an interesting sort of p- to portray religion? But again, it, it wasn't about religion, it's much more about tradition and the culture surrounding it. Yeah, totally. I think what's really interesting is whilst the play is set in uh, a Jewish context and that specificity specificity uh, is very important, it's kind of not actually about being Jewish at all. Like you say, it's about, um, for me, I find it's about not having the language to express what you're feeling. And what happens if you don't have the language? What does that make you do? Um, and also, yeah, if you're bound in, like I think for me in Judaism anyway, it is about the fact that God is in the ritual and the ritual reminds you, you know, you, you wash your hands in a certain way because it reminds you you're alive. Ritual is about reminding you you are alive. And so if that's all you've maybe ever engaged with and you start to break away from that, like that must be a really scary, and you also don't have the language to express why you are doing something that is so uh different to what you're seeing the majority of people around you engage in that must be a, a scary space where you feel very quickly a disenfranchised which maybe allows you to act more volatilely certainly for etan in the play um but also that there's no template and that's what's really interesting because mm. you feel so in and i think that's what's so interesting to, as a director is you you want your characters to feel like they're is there something quite beneficial in the fact that like Etan feels he's totally alone in the world? That's a really interesting, mm. you know, how do we act if we feel like there is no one around us like us? What does that make us do? Um, yeah. Yeah, no, totally. And I think that was, again, it was really interesting to explore that, but at least what I found between those two characters, because you had Avi, who was the older member. He was already, you know, he's already married. And for him, I know at one point in the play, again, without spoiling it all, but he he says that, you know, I've I had feelings like this as well, but I sort of I got over them and I moved on. Um, whereas, he, you know, Eitan doesn't want to do that. And in a way, it seemed like almost there was a sort of a generational divide there between how people want to approach those things and that there has been sort of a change in that um do you think that that i mean firstly was that something you intended in exploring in the play but also do you think that is the case in 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 the generations that we see now in in society or in, in the religious communities i don't know i feel like i'm probably not as involved in the more religious communities to really know um but mm. i think there is something anyway just in, in generally uh, generationally in or outside of judaism that we have come to a point where we are now interrogating things that we previously uh, knew to be existent but didn't want to attach language to or look too closely at. Um, and so I assume that that's pervasive of, of lots of different cultures, doesn't matter what. Um, sorry, I forgot the second mm. part of your question. No, yeah, that it, it was exactly that, that. That sort of that does sum it up. But also, just I guess the wider generational divide of of again the younger generation just being sort of not being okay with sort of closing things up, but actually wanting to express themselves as they are and how's they how they see things. I guess it came across with Aton to some degree. He sort of it's that he sees him, you know he, he's quite immature in that respect as well. Um, but then it's strange that again we view maturity as as you know almost having to throw our hopes and dreams away and and, and sort of just live quite a regular mm. life. Yeah, totally. I think um, there's also a question of, you know, what what would have happened if he hadn't have met someone that maybe showed a, a twinkling of the same feelings he feels? Maybe he just would have become that person. But he sort of meets someone that enables a, a conversation and, and the more space, the more air is given to that conversation, the more it's sort of permanent and it exists and he can't sort of uh, yeah. pretend it away anymore. For both of them, actually, I think that's the case. Definitely. Um 
it's interesting also, and you said you said at the beginning about the mikvah that the mikvah is sort of focused around in the play, and and, and I know I, I didn't unfortunately get to see it when it was in production, but um, I heard it on the radio as well. But there was apparently I think it was I've got I've got the measurements. It was like three thousand liters of water you yeah. sort of had in the center of the stage, which I guess must have been quite a feat of its own in its own right to sort of just put that there. Um, which is, did you have that on in the original four day production or was that just something? Yeah, we had quite a journey with it because obviously it's a total feat of like theatrical design and Corey, who did the design for both is totally brilliant. Um, the first time around we had very limited budget. So we had a, I mean, the orange team really made it work. Like they went above and beyond, but we had a, uh, Amazon primed swimming pool, paddling pool, that was just sat below mm. the surface of the stage because there's a um there's a sub stage in the orange tree it's empty underneath the sort of the floor so you can take bits of the floor out and put stuff in um so it was quite rude some would say quite rudimentary um version of the set and then obviously we were thrilled when we got to bring it back and suddenly we we had more resources and you know they they spent t- three days at least lisa and and stew at the orange tree as well technical managers production manager um putting a full that's a full working pool that's a pool with a pump I don't know if you've seen the pictures but I did see the um, I saw the, the videos as yeah. well it was quite and it had to be dredged every night and it was like if you were in the front row you were probably going to get splashed and the rest of it was piled and it was this amazing like immersive experience in a way um yeah no I was gonna say immersions seems to be a theme throughout the play as well so it's quite apt I guess yeah exactly immersion is such a it's such a like it's such a it boils down the metaphor of the play so well which is that you attempt to go into something and come out different um and so mm. it's so important that the space function like that, that you could see visually that people almost disappeared into something and came back out mm. um because that sort of reflected what the characters were desperately trying to do which was sort of wash off anything that 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 felt bad and wash off uh yeah and, and confusion Um, So it became quite magical, actually, I think, quite spiritual. came to the mikvah um and we'll get on to the, the, the adaption for, adaptation for radio shortly but when it came to the mikvah again often when people hear about stories about mikvahs or even you know again stories about infertility it's often concerning women especially when it comes to religion um and yet this story is about two men which i thought was really interesting um what, what and, and exploring again how men relate to religion and it was very much it was quite a masculine story and exploring again a, diff, a very different perspective on those issues that really affect all of us how did you approach that and was that sort of di- a very different way i guess of, of looking at that, that that same theme that's quite that's quite prevalent really um i think it's interesting you say about the masculineness of it i think we focused our focus our kind of way in was the fact that these two individuals were kind of um hoisted by the petard of masculinity that is probably quite a pretentious way of saying that they like (laughs) they uh were trapped by the very system that they were kind of trying to emulate um and so I think we focus more on the broader sense of who they thought individually Judaism aside they wanted to be who was that dream picture that they drew in their mind that every day they woke up and they were like actually today I'm going to be that guy and then how far Mm. how big is the gap between that and who they actually get to be 
in the world because that feels really interesting to me um and also I think yeah there's something there's something about the pressure of of infertility on men and especially if you've, you're involved in a patriarchal religion that dictates that you need to provide and and I don't know I think maybe I don't I don't know this is just speculative but I maybe imagine that there's more conversation around female fertility in that uh, community than there is around male fertility uh, male infertility and it might just be quite a lonely place um so I think that you're always or as a director I'm always looking for the pressures that are on people and it's just a really brilliant pressure to work with because the moment you've got pressure on a character suddenly you have reaction sort of uh mm. built in in the drama so that's exciting yeah and, and you see that pressure sort of building up as the play progresses um and and sort of again those those two characters I, I you know really emulate that you've got you know i think there's at one point you know he he, he sort of the um obviously says that he despises Aton and stuff and it's this really it's sort of love and hate really working on a on 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 on, on what do you call it on a penny I can't remember on on two different sides sort of on a, there's a very fine line between the two of them mm. um I guess that must be really interesting to explore as well yeah it's just it's a fun dynamic in and it's full of potential and it, it's just um it's good it's good writing you, you know there are people at different points in their life that want different things and so uh sometimes they intersect in a way that's confrontational and that's uh, very helpful um but also sometimes mm. maybe that you realize that underneath that what they really want is kind of similar so then the this kind of uh facade of societal uh behavior and pressure falls away and you get this little hint but then it can't stay because they don't know how to sustain that kind of earnestness and then um you know that it comes back and that's the great tragedy of the play is that you don't ever spend too long in the tenderness and that's why it's quite heartbreaking for me I think um but also it's great because in that younger character that you get so much humor because you know he's 17 and there's a lot less at stake for him and he doesn't understand why Abby has to be so like boring and and fastidious about mm -hmm. detail and and also how he's just sort of I think at one point Etan just says that's the lamest thing I've ever heard in my life when, Et when Abby tries to explain um, his feelings because he can't, he doesn't have the language. So he tries to use sort of a football metaphor and then he tries to, to use a, something else because he can't do it. And it's just, and it makes Etan laugh. And I think that, that there's something so interesting in that and, and so honest and they share something so pure and yeah, it's, it's really a, it's fa totally fascinating and also having I've directed it three times now and you just you don't get to the bottom of it it's totally this fluid moving quite true thing yeah 100 percent. and I, I found that there were, there were moments one moment you'd be sort of laughing and then the next it sort of it turns sort of it really a complete right angle to um to something incredibly serious and moves between those two which again it must be it's a testament to the actors, um, Josh Zare and Alex Walderman, and being able to sort of do that within a second, which is quite impressive. Um, I wanted to speak quickly about, again, so the, uh, amazing that we were able to move this over to the radio and, and, and have it as being part of the radio. How, how was it different directing something, again, that I've met, we've mentioned already, you know, when you go into the theatre was meant to be so visually stimulating and have that sort of <laughs> something that took a long time and was really exciting in that respect. How then do you, did you transpose that um to the radio how was that to do yeah I mean it was a it was fascinating it was kind of you had to um 
I think I found that you had to grieve and get over the the stage production quite quickly because actually that wasn't very helpful um, to kind of think of it, think of what we'd lost and actually like try and think about what we could gain. What was what's quite useful about the play is it has this convention that um, the characters will be in conversation with each other and they break out and they talk about themselves in third person, um, which is really helpful Mm. for radio because that's sort of naturally uh, inbuilt into the infrastructure of a lot of radio drama anyway. so that was exciting. And also Josh did a lot of, uh, did a couple of rewrites and stuff to make sure that everything was really clear. Um, so that was fairly simple, actually. And then it was just a kind of strange process because it's not like we went to a studio because it was in lockdown. So it was all done over Zoom. Um, and so mm. it was a sort of uh, slightly strange process, but also great. And also because it was, what was so great is they got on the initiative so soon after lockdown happened, which is a really a testament to Bertie and his team, um, that it was almost like it didn't. It's, I did direct it and organise the sort of material of it, but it was in their muscle memory so much from the production and from the run that I don't know. It was it was it was kind of organic, and I hope it feels. Um, it I think you know radio can sometimes feel a little bit. Um, affected maybe because uh, we're used to a certain style of radio or we're used to a certain uh, genre of play on the radio and so I think what was really crucial is that we found a way for it to feel uh, I don't know like you like you were just sort of eavesdropping on a very honest conversation um, which I hope we got across but yeah it was brilliant it was totally a thrill to get to do it for radio. 100% and that was something I've actually I've got on my notes as well that I found it so intimate when it's on the radio and I'm sure it would have been like that in the theatre in the theatre as well but because you've you know you've literally got just these two characters just in between your ears they're right there um and you you really can't escape in a way that I guess the point is for the pair of them they can't escape as well and I thought that was reflected really it it, 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 for me at least transposed really well to the radio yeah and that's probably the biggest point of uh, difference I guess from the stage play because your industry is in the round and also because when you go into a mikvah you have to be nude so the actors would have to get naked to get into the mikvah and then they'd have to get changed at opposite ends of the space which was quite exciting but it meant that often you depending on where you were sat you chose one character's journey through the space um Mm. so there's something that I found was quite interesting is you suddenly get both you're suddenly sort of in the minds of both characters all the time uh which is sort of, I don't know what it means, if it's a good or bad thing, but it's just an interesting thing that came from the radio drama. Yeah, and I guess as well, you know, so only so many amount of people, I guess, could have seen it at the Orange Tree, and now hopefully it would have been had a much wider audience in a way that was quite exciting, really. Yeah, um, fantastic. Let's, let's pause for a second um, and play your first choice that you've brought with us. Um, it's Ezra Furman, Transition to Nowhere. Why did you choose this? So I chose this because my sister was living for me for the first uh, 10 weeks of lockdown and we, Amazon Prime, I don't know why, um, there are other delivery methods available and I would encourage them, <laughs> um, actually more than Amazon, but uh, we bought a tiny, like the shittest of keyboards and uh, she is learning piano and so she learned this song and I'm very bad at singing but she's very good but this was the only one that I could sing as well. Um, so we spent all... So we spent the last 10 weeks singing this, so that's why. Transition from nowhere to nowhere 
Transitions to nowhere. You said um, that you chose that song because of the relationship you have with your sister and and the sort of family. Again, I've I've said previously on other episodes of the show before that family at this time for so many people has become so crucial. Um, and as well as that, communities religiously um, speaking, you know, Soho service, we're trying to focus on religion. Um, religious communities are so important. I found it really fascinating listening to the play because for me, I was transported back to the synagogue, which is a place I haven't been to for three months. And it was it was like a very strange experience. Um, all of a sudden, like, and you know, there are moments I think they described the Kiddish, which is mm. where after the service you go to and you have you, you, you have fish balls and, and wine and whiskey and they say wine and whiskey over and over again um, in the play as well. And I was just sort of, we've had to recreate that a little bit at home, but it's something I really miss. Yeah. My friends always laugh how much I miss it. And ultimately, like that was, you know, I read so many plays and that was the reason that I chose this play because there's some things that I felt so moved by the fact that there's so much terminology in it that, is so specific to a specific world and it and it felt like it never had to explain it at any point and it's just such a joy I don't know to see that representation so um I'm glad you picked up on that I, and, th- and that was something I wanted yeah and I, that's something I wanted to ask you as well because often when we think about even you know there, there isn't a huge amount of Jewish productions I mean Fiddler on the Roof comes out every once every yeah, they, they sort of they take it out once every 10 years and put it on um and and you know there is there's a lot of things that come over from America as well that sort of have Jewish influences and Israel as well but sort of northwest London Jews don't get such an interesting uh, uh, that aren't highlighted so much in when it comes to the arts and that sort of community I mean I've, I've written here I remember that you sort of they focus on sort of going up the A41 at points like that and yeah. this and there is there's so many sort of there you know and they talk about the permits for money the entire time and voxel courses and all you know it, it's just it's our world and I guess you know how that must have been so exciting as you said to sort of explore something that was so close to you and it, and again just as you said I found it really nice that they what it was refreshing that you didn't have to you know have some sort of dictionary at the side sort of yeah. explaining what all of these phrases meant exactly like it's just so um the world feels so right and um there and um I think you, you spend your life trying to translate how you grew up to people you then meet as an adult and it's just it's just really nice to sort of go back to before that. Um, and also because yeah. it attracts such a community to the play and, and a conversation around the play. And, and yeah, it was really important. And that was also why we worked really, really hard with casting director Sophie Parrott to find Jew- Jewish actors and see as many Jewish actors at audition as possible because it felt like mm. um, we wanted people that n- knew the feeling of that world. Um, and also because yeah. it, and I understood maybe this sort of dual uh, situation often of being, often sometimes, maybe just for me, of being Jewish, which is that you kind of are a minority and then sometimes you're not. Um, So it it felt really important to get that experience in the room. That's really fascinating. Um, And I think that's something that, that, you know, again, does does come out. There are sort of, there are some points, all those different aspects and idiosyncrasies of, 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 of being part of a sort of an ethnic community as much as a religious one that sort of come out throughout it. And that's sort of the, the strangeness of, of I think it's Aton again, sort of speaking with a sort of Jamaican accent the whole way through, which I'm only too familiar from my school days, not personally, but from people who I was at school with as well. And that seems, it is quite, a, it's a very, it's a, it's a, it's a strange world, but again, it, I, you know, was that, was that, and that specific thing, I, I don't know if there was sort of a deeper meaning for that or something to explore, or that was just something that was quite a fun 
thing to to, pl- to watch well, go through the play. But I've, I found Josh, it um, Josh just speaks with his own accent. That's just his accent. Um, and then there's also that there's a conversation oh, that happens in the play um, about stop trying to speak, stop trying to make yourself seem like you're not from a middle class London suburb by mm. speaking in, in different ways. So there's that conversation as well, but I just think I'm keen to emphasise that that's just how Josh speaks. That wasn't like a decision on, no, on my yeah. part. No, no, definitely. Yeah, but you're right. There, there was that conversation as well. That's what I was, what I was focusing on, um, which is really interesting. But yeah, I, I think sort of I, I'd like to end by exploring you as you know for you as a director how how this time has been, and I, I guess it's been a really unique opportunity to do this um, production that for a lot of directors I guess I haven't had that opportunity. But still, moving forward, um, it, it's it's quite a scary time, I guess, for actors. And you just said beforehand that you were on a, a, a Zoom call with a lot of different freelance actors and, and and what life looks for them now. What what has this time given you? Um, but also, what how do you see the future for um, the the arts and and the world of theatre in, in London and beyond? Um, I don't know. If I, I go quite quickly between uh, a sense of hope that we really can reflect well uh, on the problems that we know are so endemic in the industry um, and actually affect some real change and some uh, in buildings um, and also sort of suggest mm. that like we as freelance artists maybe like the buildings can't work without us so maybe that's quite an empowering stance and so maybe we really have the responsibility and the power to dictate the um standards by which we take work which feels like an interesting conversation mm. but also I've, i do worry that you know i'm early an early career artist and i'm struggling so what about all those people that have just come out of university or you know drama school and and i just wonder how i would have felt if this had happened then and if i would have you know, falling through the cracks a bit. And, and I think, you know, those are the people that we really need to make sure we're supporting the industry. And, and I think um, so many of us have sidelines of work that are outside of the sector. And, and I think maybe we've been quite quiet about that conversation so far. And I think there's something really interesting in the fact that, you know, most people can't earn a full-time, can't uh, have full-time living from working in the arts. And so, how do we become more fluid as a sector and, and embrace people working in different ways or um you know it's an int- yeah it's an interesting moment with a lot of questions but I also think we just need to f- you know there's no answers it's just in a conversation and I think most artists I would say just need to feel like they're being heard um right now and that also we're taking care of ourselves within it because you know it's going to be a long it's going to be a long one um so yeah it does seem it does seem like it yeah yeah no fantastic thank you so much for coming on um it's really really great and 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 you can listen now to the Mikva project is on it's on the bbc so you can wherever you can get that um bbc sounds or elsewhere um you can listen to it it's a fantastic play um and i highly recommend you listen to it your second choice um for music that you've brought with this is curtis harding um where we are why did why do you want to end off with that track Um, I don't know. It's a, it's an old song. It's not it's not sort of hot off anywhere, but um, it just has really great strings in it, and I just really like it because it sounds very summery. And I listen to a lot of Curtis Harding when I'm working, um, so it's just a good song with some good vibe. Mm-hmm. 